Come, Holy Spirit, fill our minds and hearts and souls with your grace. May they become that fertile soil, Lord. Fertile soil you speak of in the gospel that the very word of life may bear abundant fruit in our lives. Illuminate these scriptures for us, Lord. Convict and console our hearts. Speak for your servants are listening. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Have you ever been met with a look of mercy? You've been in a situation where you're aware of your sin, you're aware of your faults, you're aware of your failings, and you've been met with a look of mercy. And these moments can be transformative for us. They can be healing, most really kind of bringing us back to life. This is the encounter that we have today in the gospel of Christ and the adulterous woman. That is, Jesus' his look of love, his gaze of mercy upon her that, that restores who she is. We have this, you know, this passage that we're familiar with and this woman is caught in the act of committing adultery and some of the scribes and Pharisees grab her and drag her and place her before Christ and said, Lord, the law of Moses said that such a woman should be stoned. What do you say? First, something for us to be aware of is that, like, really and truly, they could care less about the law and the woman in this instance. They're just using her to try to trap Jesus. You know, where's the guy who was under the same law and same reality that's present? I mean, they, they're just using her. And it's not the point of the homily, but something for us to think of. How many times maybe, right, in our, our accusation, our condemnation, that it's not really about the truth at all. It's really about us in some way trying to get what we want or our own pride and that, that we're using people or a situation for that. But they bring her before Jesus, and yes, she is caught, right, in the act of committing adultery. And, and the Lord, again, has mercy upon her. What's important for us in this passage is that we need to recognize that we are that woman. All of us. Like, this is a historical event that happened, but all of us are this woman. Now, many of you may be saying, well, Father, like God never committed adultery, how, how can I be this woman? But she represents us in a, in, in a tangible way as sinners on, on two levels. That One, if you, if you read Scripture, the most used expression, analogy, image of God's relationship with us is that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. The Lord marries us. He's in this intimate communion with us that is spoken of most profoundly in Ephesians 5, where Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And if you read in Scripture, the Lord would speak, right? God speaks about us, our sin, as being unfaithful to Him, even as being adulterous. That when we sin, we choose another spouse, in a sense, before the Lord Himself that we espouse something else and not the Lord. And with that as well, too, this, her, um, you know, the, the penalty for this was death, that 
actually, any serious infraction upon the Ten Commandments was punishable by death. Any of them. And this, this translates and moves into what St. Paul would say is that the wages of sin is death, and speaking primarily of spiritual death. The mortal sin that St. John speaks of in his first letter, like it cuts us off from that relationship with the Lord and that we are, like, due eternal death in that way. So we're all like this woman, in a sense, in our own sin, that we're unfaithful to the Lord, we espouse something else, and that we're the wages of our sin is, is this spiritual death. Now, what happens? Like, how do we get to a place of sin? I'm going back to Ash Wednesday. I've repeated this a couple times, and if I ever repeat anything, it's, it's because the experts say, okay? You know the experts. Nobody knows who they are but they're all out there. And they, and they say you have to hear something seven times before you actually remember it. So because they're experts, I repeat things, right? It's not because I forgot I told you, you know? I'm not, I'm not quite that old yet, you know? This, this fundamental temptation, what's the fundamental temptation is that God is not a loving father. Under every temptation, God is not a loving father. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's a tyrant. And his laws, his rules, are really just to en enslave you in some way, to bind you up. They're not about your own good. They're not about setting you free to live the life that God has called. But God wants to, to hold you bound. He's your enemy in a sense. And so you need to free yourself from that. Right? Take things as you want. And all temptation... Like, the enemy sneaks in there, and he's like, again, don't pay attention to the Lord. He really doesn't care about you. And that whole sin stuff, like, eh, what is that? Like, it's really no big deal. You know what? And, and in this situation, like, you need this. You're owed this. You know, you, 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 you're going to die if you don't have this. And we fall into it and we rationalize like well I know that normally but maybe in this particular place and setting and time or whatever and it's amazing how often we can be convinced that like oh no it's, I mean it's, it's not a sin we just slip right in right and then what ends up happening that's the enemy's tactic like don't worry no big deal it's not gonna hurt everything's okay and sin, Father Langford would say, he says, sin satisfies the senses, but it will always be sour and unsettling to the soul. Like when we ultimately sit with it, like it satisfies the senses, when we have time to kind of sit and think on the back end, maybe once we stop running from thing to thing to thing, we realize that it is sour and unsettling in the soul. And this is when be this begins, this turning back to the Lord. Like the prodigal son last week, you know, he's like, had his fun, ran out of money, he's poor, and he's working on the pig farm, wanting to eat the pig food. And he begins to think, I can just go back home. This beginning of conversion. And then when the enemy realizes, like, that there's this conversion, this movement in our hearts back to the Lord, he changes his tactics. Instead of saying, oh, it's not a sin, it's no big deal, you know, he's like, oh, no, of course it's a sin. It's the biggest sin you've ever committed. And there's no reason for you to go back home because God doesn't want anything to do with you. Remember, he's a tyrant. 
So you should just stay where you are. Stay in the pigsty. Stay bound up. And he, he pours this shame and this, this negative sense of guilt and this condemnation. And it begins to bind us up. Again, don't go back. You can't go back. Brings all the heavy stuff there. Tries to bury us under the shame and doubt. Now, what's interesting in praying with this gospel passage and thinking, right, these scribes and the Pharisees, in a sense, are giving voice to the enemy's voice. Because in Scripture, in Greek, in the New Testament, ha satanos, Satan in Greek, means accuser. That's what it means. He's the accuser. So these scribes and Pharisees, that's what they're doing. You see, she's a sinner. She deserves death. She deserves death. And so they have these stones, and I was thinking, I was praying with this. I'm like, Lord, this is crazy, right? The enemy always twists what is good. He's not creative. He cannot create anything, but he just twists what is good. And he uses many times what is good. He twists it and uses it as a weapon. We see when he's tempting Jesus in the desert, what does he do? He uses Scripture to tempt him because he's twisting it. So he's using it as a weapon. And so in this sense, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone of our faith. So he's, these stones, in a sense, like they're twisting the word of God. Like you're a sinner and you're not worthy of God's grace. Yeah, you're right. That's the truth. But when it's lunged at us in that way, in this way of condemnation, pouring the shame upon us, then it's meant to pull us away from the Lord. This is the tactic of the enemy after we've turned back to him. Now, what does Jesus do? He enters into this barrage, right? He enters into these, these attacks of the enemy. And most of the time, the Lord comes in quietly, but with great power. Comes in quietly, with great power. And so what does he begin to do? He begins to write in the dirt. You know, like, and the guys are standing there and they're like, I guess aggravated. They just keep telling him like, hey, well, what do you say? What do you say? So then he stands up that he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he begins to write in the dirt again. One by one, beginning with the elders, they drop their stones and walk away. Whatever the Lord was writing, whatever the Lord said, convicted their hearts. And you see that. Jesus' voice pierces the darkness. Jesus' voice is more powerful than the enemy always, and he casts them out. And the question is, like, what is he writing? For 2,000 years, people are like, man, what was he writing in the desert? What was he writing in the dirt there, you know? St. John, why did you take your iPhone out, man, and take a couple snapshots? What's there? There's a, there's a few basic theories, right? One theory is he's just like doodling, saying, I'm not even going to pay attention to you, you know? Another theory is he's writing their, their sins in the dirt. Uh, another theory comes from a prophecy in Jeremiah 17 that says that those who offend the Lord, their names will be written in the earth. So it's saying that he may have been writing their names. And they would have been aware, being scribes and Pharisees, of this prophecy. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments, knowing, right, that like probably all of them at one point had an offense against the Ten Commandments and say, well, so like we should just stone you too, right? 
because who knows what, they were, what he wrote, but they were convicted and they went away. And in this moment, we have Christ who's alone with the woman. And St. Augustine says this, he says they were alone and, and he says it, I'm gonna just give you the Latin phrase first because the words play off of each other better that way. He says, and they were alone together, misera and misericordia. The miserable one and the merciful one. And they looked upon each other. This is the experience that Christ desires for each of us. Actually, mercy is when the, the love of God meets our misery. That's what mercy is. When the love of God meets our sin and our misery, it becomes mercy. So Jesus tells her, woman, or he asks her, does anyone condemn you? She says, no, sir, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, it really wasn't a sin. It's no big deal. He acknowledges the sin. He has mercy upon her. He has mercy upon her. He doesn't leave her there. This is, this is a beautiful image, I think, as well, too. When is the first time we read that God's playing in the dirt? In Genesis, when he creates us. It says he takes the dust of the earth and he forms us. Then he breathes his life into us. Creation of us, right, is through the Lord taking the dust of the earth and breathing life. So in this moment, this woman who is dead in her sin, and who is moments away from being physically dead, he plays in the dirt, and he breathes and speaks mercy. Recreation. Resurrection. New life. Last week, we had the prodigal son, right? My son, my daughter is lost and has come back home. My son, my daughter has died and has come back to life through the encounter with mercy. Have you ever experienced someone gazing upon you with this mercy? Have you experienced the Lord gaze upon you in this way? This is the invitation this week in this gospel passage. All of us are this woman in need of the Lord's mercy. All of us are this woman in need of God's mercy to free us from the wages of sin, which is death, to restore us despite our being unfaithful to him. The beginning of Lent, I asked everyone, I said, Outside of your prayer and your fasting and your almsgiving, you need to do one thing. Like if you do nothing else this Lent, do this. Every single day, ask God to convict you in every fiber of your being of his perfect love for you. Of his perfect love for you. Infinite, merciful love. Let him convict you of that. And then the same thing, 
ask him, Lord, convict me every single day, Lord. Convict my heart of my sin in light of your mercy. Love first, and then my sin in light of your mercy. Why my sin? So that I can be restored, so that I can be healed, that you can experience the new life that comes from Christ's mercy, a resurrection within our soul. But if we don't acknowledge our sin, there's no need for mercy. There's no need for new life. So I want to invite you, if you, you haven't gone to confession yet this Lent, come on home. Come on home. And the Lord wants to gaze upon you with mercy. He wants to play in the dirt, speak life. No condemnation, but new life. And then we can hear from him, as did this woman. As no one condemn you, then neither do I. Go, sin no more. As no one condemn you, then neither do I. Go, sin no more.